So we're in Daniel chapter 9 today. And uh, Daniel chapter 9 is a hot topic chapter for debate among theologians. All right? um, and, and so some of you who are into that kind of stuff probably have been just waiting for saying, oh, when do we get to Daniel 9? Um, and the, the debatable part, the, the part that we all want to really dig into, comes at the end of the chapter. And it's, it's the 70 weeks. And what, what does that mean? Because it seems like a timeline that Gabriel's giving Daniel. And like we, we, we want to understand it. And we want to say, ooh, what, what is the 70 weeks? This seems, this seems really good and important. And there's different theories and all of that on the 70 weeks. And, and we will get to that when we get there. But I want to warn you, I don't want us to miss the first half of this chapter just trying to get to that part, okay? Um, because the first part, I think, is probably, honestly, more practical and more applicable to us in our life right where we are than worrying about 70 weeks, all right? Um, so we'll get to 70 weeks at the end, but, but stick with me. Let's focus in on what Daniel 9 as a whole teaches us. And I think even as we see the first part of Daniel 9, it'll help us understand that last part um, better as well. So let's jump in. Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Asuras, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So first off, timeline, where does this fit in in Daniel's life? This fits in just before he gets thrown in the lion's den, okay? And so as we looked at that story, we, we realized the fact he's older in life now. He's on up in age, um, and he has, has lived uh, a good long life. He is now in a whole new kingdom with this guy. Darius is now king. He's not any of the Babylonians. He's the ones that conquered the Babylonians. And so that's where we find us in the timeline of Daniel's life. And what is Daniel doing? He's reading God's word. He's reading God's word. He's saying, hey, I was, I was just reading in what Jeremiah wrote. Now, Jeremiah and Daniel most likely had some overlap in their lifetime. When Daniel was a little kid in Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was conquered and, and he was taken into captivity, Jeremiah was prophesying and working in that region at that time. So there's a chance that little Daniel running around might have even heard Jeremiah speaking, might have even heard him saying some of these things. But here he is later on in life, and what he's doing is he's looking back and he's reading the words that God gave to Jeremiah, and he's saying, this is the word of God. And not only that, he's looking at it and he's saying, wow, it, it, it even says in here how long we're supposed to be in captivity, he can mark the captivity by his lifetime, right? Like he was one of the first ones taken into exile. And he's able to mark this by his lifetime. And he's saying, hey, it's supposed to be 70 years. God told Jeremiah, it's going to be 70 years. And so he's like, we're getting close. 
you know, like it's, it's almost here. And he doesn't say specifically what part of Jeremiah he's, he's reading here, but it's likely that it, it was this verse, um, Jeremiah 25, uh, verses 9 through 11. It says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, against all uh, these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And, uh, and so this is before any of this happened. God says through Jeremiah, I'm sending Nebuchadnezzar, and he's going to destroy you guys. And it was clear to the people, everyone knew, Daniel knew why this was happening. It was because of their sin. It was because God said, here as my people, you're supposed to live this way. And they said, hmm, that's nice, we're not going to do that. Right? Like, that's the story of the Old Testament. God says, do this, people do that. Right? Like, it's just who we are as people. We just mess up. Um, and that's what the Israelites had done. And so this period of captivity is God's punishment on them for that time. And here we have Daniel, and he has lived this captivity. He has lived it. And what do we see him doing as he reads God's word? It takes him straight into a place of prayer. And this is what should happen when we engage with God in his word, is that God's word draws God's people to prayer. We should have a natural inclination that, that when, when we see something in God's word, it should lead us to like, oh, this affects my life. I need to talk to him about this. I need to go to him about this. This relates to me. I need to have that conversation with him right now about this. Uh, this weekend, um, our elders, we got away for a little retreat. Um, Rona, hey, Rona. She blessed us with letting us use her cabin uh, for a night. And so uh, we, we got away together and just discussed kind of where our church is and praying over where God's leading us and, and that kind of thing for the next year and down the road. And it was a really good time together. But one of the things we always kind of do is we try to assess kind of like our strengths and, and maybe areas of improvement for us as a church. And we all said that we felt like um, our devotion to God's word is a strength, um, from not just in our preaching, but down through our ministries, like seeing all different aspects in the church, all, all the different areas of our church, like God's word is central in what we're doing. We feel like, yes, that's a strength. Um, but sadly, one of the things that we said as an area of improvement is prayer, um, as we're assessing where we are as a church. Um, for, for years, we've, we've constantly tried to have like a prayer time before service and It'll, we'll make an emphasis of it, and people will come, and we're like, yes, we're getting this going, and then it fizzles out, and then it fizzles out, and then there's like one or two of us that are, are still praying, and so, so we've said, hey, let's bring that back again, so if you want to come pray with us, 930, uh, we're going to move it back in this room, we're not going to be in the back room anymore, but yeah, 930 before church on Sundays, you want to come pray with us, uh, please do so, 
But if you have other ways that maybe God's laid on your heart that like, hey, here's a way that our church can, can grow in our prayer life as a church, right? Like I know each of us individually in our lives have our prayer life, but here's a way that, that what if we tried this as far as praying together as a church? Um, bring that to us. We'd love to, to talk to you about that because as, as we go to God's word, if we just go to it and it doesn't change us, it doesn't affect us, it doesn't affect us, our relationship with him in a way that we want to talk to him about it and pray to him and lift up other people, then we're just taking it to kind of fluff ourselves up, really, um, if, you're, if you don't walk away changed from it. And that's not what we want to have happen here, right? And so we, we want to see that coming to happen because God's word draws God's people to prayer just as it does Daniel here. Um, and so, so as we're going in further in this, we get to see how Daniel is praying. Now, remember, that what did I say? This is right before he gets thrown in the lion's den, right? It's right in that kind of time period. And why did he get thrown in the lion's den? Because he was praying to God, and he wouldn't stop. So we get to see here in Daniel 9 the kind of prayer that Daniel was praying at this time. And I want to tell you that this prayer might seem strange to us if we're honest because it's a prayer of confession and it's a prayer of confession for the the jewish people as a whole for the way that they have failed for the way that they've fallen short and you're like oh yeah well that that makes sense that would be good but apply this in our life apply this to here and now we don't really take ownership for corporate failings, our generational sins, right? Because we say, oh, well, I didn't do that. I wasn't the one that did that. And, you know, being from the States, there's certain things, certain issues in the States, especially in the South where I'm come from, that, that people will say, oh, well, this is a generational sin kind of thing. And then other people say, well, I wasn't the one doing that. Like, take, for instance, like slavery, one of the worst things in the, the history of where I come from. And the, the common thing is for people that look like me to say, well, I didn't own slaves. I don't think any of my family even owned slaves. But I still want to say slavery is horrible. That's a horrible thing. Those that went through it and their, their descendants still have repercussions from that. I see similar things here in Canada, in this culture, that we say, well, well, I didn't do that. You know, like, I, di I didn't have anything to do with the residential school system. That wasn't me. That was a horrible thing, though. That's something that's in our culture, something that, that we, it's come down to us, right? And yet, so many times, when, when we face these things, our, our natural inclination is just to take it personally. And like, is, is this about me? Well, here we have Daniel, and we've looked through the story of Daniel at his life. And do you think there is any point in Daniel's life that he's worshiping false gods? Do you think there's any point in his life that he's doing all of the things that Israel is being punished for, and he's the one that's basically taking the punishment being in, in exile? It doesn't seem to be the case. He seems to be devoted to God from day one. And yet, 
At, let's read the way that he prays here in his plea at this point. Verse 4. I pray to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. Daniel's owning it for all of them. He's grouping himself right in there. To our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses and the servant of God have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything that what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins. For the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and the people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant, to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon the sanctuary which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And Daniel's prayer is saying, God, we are guilty. And our only hope is your mercy. Your mercy is our only hope. 
Because you are righteous and we are not. And while we might look at corporate sins, we might say, that wasn't me, I didn't do that. When we look at our own lives, we all can pray exactly what Daniel prays. Because we all are guilty. We all have done unrighteousness. We all have sinned against God. Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And that's what Daniel is praying here. And that's why even though we've seen in him, as far as Old Testament characters go, like Daniel is pretty much like the best one. We don't have any dirt on him, right? Like there's, there's nothing. We, we, we don't have all the bad about him. David, well, we got the whole Bathsheba thing and all that with him, right? Um, Noah, yep. Right after God saves him, what, do you, what does he do? He gets drunk. And passed out drunk there, right? Like, I mean, like all, throughout uh, the Old Testament, it gives us the good, bad, and the ugly about all of these people. Why? Because that's real life. That's who we are as people. Daniel, we don't know a lot of the bad about him. He, I'm sure he had it. But we don't know much of it. But here in this, this passage, he's praying and he's saying, I am among those who are guilty. That I'm not just suffering for the sins of my great-grandparents, but my sins are worthy of this punishment. God, you are just in what you have done to our people and what I have gone through. And that takes him to this place where he gives this beautiful example of what biblical repentance looks like. This prayer of repentance of saying, I... We don't want that anymore. That's not who we want to be. We want to be your people. In our lives, we need to have these kind of prayers where we say, I've messed up. That's not who I want to be, God. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. That is not not who I want to be. I have sinned against you. I am guilty. I am worthy and deserving of your punishment, of your wrath. But the great thing is when we, when, when, we go to that place of repentance. Prayers of repentance should always lead to a plea for God's mercy. It should always be connected. If you're just praying like, oh, look how bad I am. And then you're just staying in that place. Then you're not making the connection. Because the, next, the connection is what Daniel makes here, which as far as Old Testament passages go is amazing. His view of God here and the mercy of God that he knows and he understands in his life. And he's saying, hey, yeah, we have messed up, but God, we are pleading for your mercy. He says it three or four times throughout that passage. God, our plea, what we're we're wanting, what we're seeking, what we're asking you for is your mercy on us. God, please, please, please show us your mercy. Restore your city, restore your people. He's read in Jeremiah God's promises is going to happen. And yet here he is with all of his heart praying that it will happen. This should be an example for us as well. When we come to promises in Scripture, we shouldn't just say, oh, well, God said it's going to happen, so I don't got to worry about it. God says Jesus is going to come back, so okay, whatever, whenever. No, we should be like Daniel here, and we should anxiously anxiously pray for those things. Say, yes, come, Lord Jesus. 
We, we long for that day. We want to see that day. Daniel here is longing for the day that Jerusalem will be restored. He's seeking God and he's saying, please, please, please have mercy on us. Please show us your mercy. How does he think that's going to happen? By restoring Jerusalem. But we're going to see in a minute is maybe God's plan's a little bigger than his plan. And so he's, he's asking for, for God's mercy. And then... Check this out. Has anybody ever had this happen when you're praying? When I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I've now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. God answers his plea for mercy. Gabriel, the messenger for God, for God an angel from the royal throne, comes in. <laughs> And he says, as soon as you were pleading for mercy, a decree went out. A word went out from the throne. And I am here to speak that word to you. And I want you to know that, yes, we might not have Gabriel show up. But when we pray prayers of repentance and pleas of mercy, God is quick to answer that. He is quick to show his mercy. He is quick to forgive because, see, God answers genuine prayers of repentance. He does. He did it for Daniel here in this way, but he does it for us in our lives. When we say, I have fallen short, God, yes, Christ Jesus, he is perfect. He is holy. I believe in him. I believe that he is the merciful one. I believe in him. Please forgive me, Lord. That's something that he is quick to, to answer, and he answers it in a genuine way to genuine prayers of repentance. And he does it for Daniel here by sending Gabriel to speak to him. Some of us might think, man, that'd be kind of nice if you know, I'm talking to him and the angel just showed up and spoke it to me. That'd be a little easier. Um, but remember, where did all of this start? All of this started with him reading Scripture. Daniel, who for his whole life has been able to interpret dreams, had visions, had these supernatural uh, aspects of, of his relationship with God where things were revealed to him, still says, hey, here's what's important. I'm going to go to God's Word and see what he said. And that's where he starts. And that's where he can have a consistent daily relationship with the Lord through Scripture and prayer. Right? Like he's, he's what, 70-ish probably at this point. And we have, what, like five-ish supernatural visions, dreams so far that we've covered. 70 years, five encounters with God in that way as opposed to 70 years, read God's word every day, 
speak with him every day through prayer. And so if in your life, I'm not saying that God can't still show up with the angel and give a special, but he can do all of that that he wants to do. He's God. But if that's what you're longing for and what you're focusing on, then you're missing out on so much more depth you can have in your relationship with God. Like if that, if that happens for me, I'd be like, awesome, God. It's never happened. Never seen an angel. Okay. Just being honest with you. No people who said they have. Great. Hasn't happened for me. Do I know God? Yes. How do I know him? Through his word and through prayer life with him. Right? And so you can, you can have that without having to have the angel show up. That's what I'm saying. Now, what does the angel show up and tell him? Here's where things get really, really interesting. The 70 weeks. So what was Daniel praying for? He's praying for mercy and the restoration of of Jerusalem, right? That's, that's what he thinks is supposed to happen. Here's what we get. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to, announce, to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolate. You guys got all that? It's pretty simple, right? It's so, so straightforward. You know? It's like, Gabriel, what are you talking about? So it's pretty widely accepted. And I'm going to go a little deeper with you guys today, okay? And so if I start to lose you, just come back in a minute when I, when I start talking about Jesus, okay? But it's pretty widely accepted that the 70 weeks refer, just refer to a period of time. So weeks as a period of time, not necessarily a seven-day week, okay? Um, so we don't think that Gabriel here is saying that this is what it means. Uh, another thing to take into account, this is coming from the throne of God. Uh, other, other places in Scripture, it tells us that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, right? So God's timeline and his telling of time is a little different than ours because he's a little bigger than us, okay? Um, But this is coming from him. And he goes through and he says that there's 70 weeks decreed. And then he basically says, after Jerusalem has started being restored, you have a period of seven weeks, then you have a period of 62 weeks, and then later on there's there's a period of one week after the 62, okay? Um, And now there's different theories on what this means. 
A lot of people take the weeks um, to equal years, uh, a period of seven years. So a week would be seven, so seven years. So 70 groups of seven years would be a a literal translation, a little literal approach to this. Um, Others say, well, no, it just means some kind of time period, you know, and we don't really know what that, that means. Um, But here are some different uh, approaches to this, some different interpretations. And I'm going to read this to you. This is not from me. This is from a commentator uh, that I was reading on this. So, but first there's the traditional messianic interpretation. This view regards this passage as a prophecy of the first advent of Christ in the flesh, the central point of which is his death. And it speaks also of the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Okay, So this is the most traditional view of this passage is that it's talking about when Jesus dies on the cross. Okay, There's a second view, and this one applies the passage to Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, the guy we looked at last week um, that a lot of the prophecy was about. And, uh, and he, um, this, this certain guy that wrote this and all... Denied the messianic character of the prophecy and referred it to uh, the desolation that Antiochus brought and the destruction that he brought. Um, he thinks that there are 62 weeks between the return of Zerubbabel and Antiochus, and but the math just isn't with him on this when we look at history. So, not too sure about that one. Um, the next one, the Christian Church Exposition. The sevens are not taken as designating weeks of, of years but are merely symbolic numbers. After the expiration of the 70 years of exile, there is to follow a period of, de- of definite length during which the people of God will be brought to salvation, a period which will endure as long as the world and time, indeed until the very consummation. The indefinite period is itself divided into three parts. Uh, first, up until Christ's coming, second, the church age, and third, the age of the rule of the Antichrist. Okay, um, and so that's how that's another view. Um, basically, uh, also in this view, they would say oh, the Bible uses numbers symbolically, and so like numbers for completeness or what they're like seven and ten. You put seven and ten, you got seventy. Um, so that kind of stuff. If you've heard that kind of stuff taught before, that would fit within this view. And then the fourth one is the parenthesis interpretation. And uh, this is the most recent kind of a little bit different view that's been put out there. Um, And the guy that wrote about this, he places the terminus aquo of the 70 years in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. The period of seven years refers to the 49 years during which Jerusalem was rebuilt. So the seven sevens, 49 years, how long it took to rebuild Jerusalem. The 62 sevens begin immediately after that and bring us down um, to most likely around the triumphal entry, um, our crucifixion of Christ, right around that period. Um, After which, within less than a literal week, the Messiah was cut off. The promises made in verse 24, however, are not fulfilled at Christ's first coming, uh, for Israel did not recognize their Messiah Um, They do not know him yet as their sin bearer. Their transgression has not been finished. And so the 70th seven is not to follow the 62 sevens immediately. 
so between the 69th and the 70th week, there is a great, what he calls parentheses, uh, which has now lasted over 1,900 years or 2,000 years at this point, okay? So I don't know if you followed what he was saying there, but the first group, seven sevens, 49 years to rebuild Jerusalem. That happened, okay? And then from that point, how long is it until Christ? Until Christ on the cross, the 62 sevens. Which that math is pretty convincing and it pretty much matches up. Um, But then this last part, you know, is kind of hard to follow. So, So now that I've put all of that into your brain, let's go back and read it again and see what you think maybe is being said here. Okay, so you kind of know what to listen for, what to look at as we read it again. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and its sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering, and on the week of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. All right, so which one is it? You guys got it now? I think there's openness for interpretations here. I think it's one of those things in the end where when we're in God's throne room, he's going to be like, see the 70 weeks? We're like, oh yeah, we see the 70 weeks, obviously. <laughs> Makes total sense now. But here's what I think is important. What was Daniel praying for? Mercy. Forgiveness of sin. What does Gabriel say is coming? There in that first part, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness. We see here what he's praying for, and we see that those things, when do we know that they're ultimately accomplished? When Jesus returns. And so I think this is laying out all the way until the end. And I believe that there, there is... Um, the abomination who causes desolation. I believe that is still to come. Why do I believe that? Because Jesus said so. All right, so let's look at what Jesus said about this passage. Matthew 24. It's great when Jesus can kind of just clear up these kind of confusing things for us. But Matthew 24, starting in verse 15, he says this, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Context? He's like, here, I'm going to explain it to you. When you see him standing in the holy place, this is something still to come. 
Let the reader understand, and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the, the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing and infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus is saying, hey, the, the abomination that causes desolation, that's still to come. Even here in Daniel, it talks about the holy city being destroyed. When did that happen? AD 70, Jerusalem was destroyed. That's happened. Who was it done by? It was done by the Romans. They tore it down. But who does Daniel say is going to do it? He says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy who did Jesus say about people who aren't his? Who is their God? Satan, the enemy. The one who's to, to come as the Antichrist in the end, as the abomination who causes desolation. Who's going to have his day, who's going to have his reign for a period of time, just as it says here in Daniel. But in the end, what's going to happen? Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What's the decreed end of the desolator? Jesus says he's coming back and it's going to be like lightning. And everybody's going to know. You won't miss it. So if anybody comes saying, hey, Jesus is over here. We got to go find him. Or, or maybe you missed him. Or maybe, no, you won't miss him. Second coming, everybody's going to know. And the question is at that point, have you cried out in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and given your life to him to be changed, to be made new, to be one of his elect as he talked about in that passage? Are you ready for his coming? Because I believe all of what Daniel is given here is pointing to that moment because Daniel was praying for God's mercy and his peace and his righteousness to come and Daniel thought that that just meant oh we're going to restore Jerusalem and then we're going to really live the way God wanted us to live from the start and God says no I'm going to restore Jerusalem and it's going to be a wreck again you guys are going to keep messing it up but there's one coming and he's going to be cut off like it says here and Jesus was cut off he was cut off from the father when he's dying on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's praying that because he, in the first time in all of eternity past, had experienced separation from the Father. 
And he did that because no longer was he in perfect love and harmony and unity with the Father as he has existed for all eternity past, but instead now he was experiencing the wrath of God poured out on him, the wrath that we deserve for our sin. He died on the cross. And we know that he's able to come back and fulfill the rest of these promises because he rose again. He didn't remain dead. So I invite you today to place your faith in him. When's he coming back? Some number of weeks, 70 of them maybe. What does that mean? I don't know. But he's coming back and we should be ready. Are you ready? Are you looking forward to that day? Do you anxiously await that day? Are you looking forward to the day where, where there's an end to sin, that he has atoned for iniquity, that he's gonna bring in everlasting righteousness, and he's gonna seal both vision and prophet and anoint a most holy place? It's not a rebuilt temple. It's not Jerusalem. It's a new heaven and a new earth where everything is made right. And we get to look forward to that day with great anticipation. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for who you are and for what you're doing for us. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that honestly, sometimes we don't understand all of it. Because that just means it's so much bigger than us and it comes from you. And Lord, I thank you for that day where we can, in your presence, understand fully these things and, and how you are working in and through time. But we do know the central point and the central focus of it all is Christ. And I thank you that you revealed that to Daniel these many years before. And Lord, I pray that we will follow his example in seeking you in humble earnestness of genuine repentance genuine faith in you and knowing who you are and that you are a God of mercy. I thank you for your mercy. It is so good. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.